0: This is the audio lecture for uh, Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. It is only the prologue that is part of the syllabus. We've already discussed about half of it in class. I am going to uh, run through almost all of the character profiles which are given in the prologue, irrespective of whether we've done them in class or not. But that's only for the sake of continuity. The ones which we have already done in class, I'm not going to discuss in detail. The rest I will try to as best as I can in this lecture. We have already also, of course, discussed um, the you know the prologue and the whole work as an example of estate satire. But I want to start with actually uh, page number thirty-two of the introduction. Um, this, as well as uh, an essay at the back by Jill Mann, which talks about Chaucer's Canterbury Tales as an estate satire, Are to um, you know. Um, Two extra textual uh, references that I am going to use throughout the lecture. Uh, throughout, uh, even in the class, we were uh, following the logic of the introduction. So, we are following the way in which the introduction follows the historical and the religious and the um, theoretical context, um, which lies in the background of Chaucer's text. And then we are picking up the profiles from in between the prologue. Uh, to discuss about uh, how these different characters are either representatives of their class or how they uh, can be seen as being stereotyped through uh, literary or thematic genres, and um, you know, like the estate satire, and how they represent the historical time within which um, you know they're being mentioned in that sense. Uh, so we have. Um, we have already discussed the beginning of the prologue once in class, so I am going to run through it very very quickly and uh, when we start with the description of the Knight, the Knight and the square are two profiles that we have discussed at length in class. That's when I'll switch on to a general discussion of the Estates at Anyway, so the, uh, the prologue actually begins with when that april with a shower sweet the draught of march had burst to the root and bathed every vine in such liquor of which virtue engendered is the flower uh, this basically means that april is a time of uh, of showers it's it's the time of spring in europe and uh, this kind of beginning of talking about spring which is or has been for a very long time in literature a representative metaphor of rebirth, of regeneration and by virtue and, and as an extension of those kind of metaphors also a reference to rebirth, also a reference to romance new things either blooming, love blooming in that sense but also of all things which have died away in, this, in, in the month of or in the season of autumn um, or in the season of winter actually coming back to life Right. Um, so, uh, when April's wither showers sweet, April is the month, uh, and showers sweet is a reference to the rain. The drought of March had perched to the root. Right. So, uh, the drought is dryness, or um, you know, the dryness of which, which is part of what March does. Um, and the dryness had pierced to the root it had gone till the root of the trees but now with the rain which has come with the April with the with the spring in April it is now piercing the earth and it is reaching the roots and bathed every vein in such sweet liquor in switch liquor liquor is moisture um, and vein is basically every part and so all the trees all the flowers all the animals they are experiencing the rains and with the rains there is a general forgetfulness of the dryness or of the lifelessness of winter of which when virtue engendered is the flower and with this moisture which has come with the april now the flower is going to bloom and flower is basically it's a symbol of regeneration it's a symbol of plants animals coming back to life and uh, that power of life of vitality has come back with the rains when Zephyrus eke with a sweet breath Zephyrus is the reference is given on page number 50 in the book and uh, please read it here it's the zodiac sign uh, April is the zodiac sign of the Ram and so on and so forth and there is also all of this is given here um, Zephyrus is um, a Greek character who is supposed to be a representative of West Wind and with the West Wind comes also, it's the breath of life in a certain sense when Zephyrus eke with his sweet breath, sweet breath is the breath of life inspired hath in every holt and heath holt and heath is wood and heath, heath is these sort of lowly mountains, slowly rolling mountains covered with uh, grass and holt is wood, wood is basically it's the trees and Zephyrus because he is breaths this sort of you know he's infused everything with the sweet breath of life so every tree and these rolling hills everything is coming back to life the tender crops and the young son hath in the ram his 12 his half course he ran right um tender crops is basically young shoot so basically it's it's the same root what is what we now use as crops right so the plants are coming in the young sun, young sun, because uh, the ram or April, it, it, it represents the zodiac sign of the ram, which is supposed to be the first zodiac sign. So the earlier year has sort of died with the winter and then, you know, it's again the same metaphor of regeneration, it's the new year that is being born. And so with the new year, uh, you know, the one rotation around the sun has been completed. So now the sun that you've seen is a young sun. It's the side that we seen last year, you know, for the last time in that sense. And um, that happens. And small fowls make melodies. Small fowls are small birds. Birds are singing. That sleep in all night with with open eye. So pricketh them nature in her kurhaj. Kurhaj is uh, desire. It's also heart. The word is used, um, you know, with these slight variations of meanings in different places. It means um, it, it means feelings also. It means desires also. It means heart right? Um, And and it's a word that uh, Chaucer uses very, very often. And so the birds are so, uh, they're so drunken with love. They're so so happy because the spring is here uh, that they can't sleep. They're restless all night uh, because of the love that's been stirred in them. Again, regeneration, fertility, all of those kind of um, almost pagan sort of references so pricketh the nature in her courage prikith is urges as in because nature is now uh, come into the sphere of spring so the birds are now inspired uh, it is this change in nature this pleasant change in nature has inspired them towards love and this is basically where the sudden change or you know, sort of the uh, the, the mastery of Chaucer sort of comes through, the uh, the progression from this line into the next line, which says, "Then long and folk to goon goon on pilgrimage," and pilgrimage is pilgrimage. You all know what pilgrimage is. And long and folk, uh, folk, and um, as in people long to, people aspire to, people want to, goon is to go on pilgrimages. And uh, the, till now, whatever you've read, whatever eleven nines you've read till now they were the, the that's the kind of sentiment that's the kind of metaphoric language or poetic language that was usually used um, in romances in courtly romances uh, in that kind of poetry and so what you would expect to uh, hear after that is not really uh, to hear that when the nature is so beautiful when love is everywhere when um, you know this this whole idea that the nature is sort of piercing into the heart of Animals also into the roots of the trees, it's seeping into the earth and it's sort of bringing about this kind of vitality. Um, you know, you expect to hear a courtly love romance between uh, people after this kind of an introduction, but Chaucer sort of turns it around and he says, and this is the kind of time when people long to go on pilgrimages. It's actually not usual for these kind of texts to begin like that so because when you say that people go on pilgrimages that squarely puts it either into the realm of uh, devotional uh, literature, literature about scriptures right Uh, or it puts it into the uh, framework of um, estate literature and Chaucer does not really follow the course of either of those two we're going to discuss that as well and Palmares for to seek in strange sand Palmares are basically pilgrims who seek strange strands. Strange strands or strands. Um, strands is still used in uh, in uh, contemporary English and uh, basically uh, this is a time when folks go on pilgrimages and they go to foreign shores, different places to go on pilgrimages. To fern halves, scuth in sundry lands have, uh, and this basically means that shrines in different parts. So this is medieval Christianity was um, you know, um, religion was a very, very, very big part of how people lived. We have discussed this in class. I will perhaps discuss this a little bit throughout the lecture as well. And especially from every shire's end, shire is a county of England to Canterbury, they went. So he's saying that this is a time when people go to different places for pilgrimages. Sometimes they go to foreign lands, but they specifically and especially go to Canterbury. Um, from every county in England. The holy blissful martyr for to seek. The holy blissful martyr is Thomas Becket, whose shrine is at Canterbury. Uh, that him that hem hath helpen when that they were seek. That him is them, that them had helped. So the, the syntax um, is slightly different in medieval English, of course. Uh, but if you read it carefully, if you read it in the correct way, I think you can connect it with a lot of contemporary words. So the, uh, so the meaning is so not, not so very distant. That him hath holpen help, when that they were seek. So whenever they wanted help, whenever they sought, whenever they would seek help, uh, the saint of Canterbury, Thomas Beckett, helped them. Uh, befill that in that season on a day... And now from the general sort of background um, as to when the story is taking place, now the narrator comes on to uh, the specific characters and the specific instances before it happened that in that season of pilgrimages when people go on pilgrimages on a day in Southwark at a tabard, as I lay. So in Southwark, which is a place in England at the Tarbord Inn, as the narrator is sitting there ready to wind in on my pilgrimage, ready to wind in is uh, ready to set out ready to start on my pilgrimage to canterbury with full devout courage this is another version of the same word that we've read earlier on a, in line number 11 so pricketham nature in her courage that this line right so it's the same word and here the word actually means feeling that's what i was saying so there's this whole spectrum of meanings which is associated with this word and Chauncey uses it again and again and you know that's, that's another way in which you can sort of see how um, semantics has sort of changed and it helps uh, to build up different layers of meanings. So the narrator is sitting in this tabard inn in Southwark to go to Canterbury with full devout courage as in my heart is full of these devout feelings and I'm sitting there and I'm waiting to go to Southwark um, on the pilgrimage. At night was come into that hostel rye well nine and twenty in a company. So at night was come into the hostel Rai. Hostel Rai is the inn. So in that inn at night came well nine and twenty in a company, a company of nine and twenty, twenty nine people, right? And then he joins in and then the host join in. So that makes a total of thirty one people. Of sundry folk by adventure ye fall. Ye fall is in fellowship and pilgrims were they all. So of sundry, sundry basically means. And S-U-N-D-R-Y is a word that is still used in England, in English. Sorry, and sundry basically means different, right? Of a different, varied kind. And so they were different folk. They were different people by a venture. here means chance. They they had fallen together by chance in fellowship, as in they came together as a group. They became a company together uh, by chance because they were all pilgrims. That toward Canterbury wouldn't ride, the chambre and the stable were worn wide. So they were all going to Canterbury, and that's why they all were riding together. The chambers and the stables weren't wide. Now he's talking about the Tabardin. He's saying that the bedrooms and the stables, people are travelling by horse, so you know stables are required. And well, we weren't eased at best. So all of these 29 people, they came in, they were, they came together because they were all going to the pilgrimage. And he's saying that the Tabard Inn is a very, very comfortable place. It has uh, big bedrooms, it has big stables. And well, we were in East at best. So we were given the best hospitality here. In a certain sense, um, you know, when you hear from the host towards the end of the, pro, uh, you know, prologue, um, all of these kind of details go on towards uh, describing the host as a person who is a man who's a merchant of course he's a businessman but he's also a businessman of uh, <clears throat> of a lot of means a, he is he is a rich businessman and he owns an inn which is big enough to house 31 people and there might be other people as well and he has the best food in the inn he has the best uh, bedrooms he has the best hospitality and so on and so forth and we're going to talk about the host later on as well but i just wanted to highlight these words uh, these lines with reference to the host as well now uh, if you guys want to get a sense of um, how the estate literature sort of functions throughout this introduction it's given on page number 32 one or two of those points i've already made but i'm just pointing you to where you can actually find them in text so you can use this introduction and you can use Harriet Raghunathan's, um you know reference in the exam also to make the same points that i've already done He says um, he says next and shortly when the sun was to rest, as in the sun had rested, the sun had set. So had I spoken with him ever rich on, ever rich on is each and every one of them. Sort of a composite word, this also, uh, also uses it at many places. So the narrator says that I went to this company of 29 people who would come in and I speak to each, each and every one of them. And made forward early for, oh, oh then I was of their fellowship anon, anon is at once. That is that I was also um, that I was also in their company as, in I was going to the same place that they were going to, and made forward early for to rise to take our way there as I you devise, right? So he told them that I'm going to the same place, and if uh, and he would like to go with them, so and made forward early for to rise, early for to rise as in, and I plan to wake up or rise early the next morning. We agreed that I would also wake up. And uh, we would also take our way together. We would go together. there as I you device device is <clears throat> uh, device still has a secondary meaning even today of when you devise something, you sort of explain something, you bring something about in that sense. Um, so that is basically what he's saying. So I will tell you, the narrator is saying, I will tell you how our journey actually went from there onwards. Um, one small thing that I want to talk about before we actually uh, sort of plunge headlong into the uh, prologue uh, that Chaucer uses this sort of example of the, or, or he uses the setup of the pilgrimage in a very, very shrewd and a very intelligent manner. Because a pilgrimage would be one of the very, very few places where people from different walks of life, like the knight or, and the wife of path, as well, as well as the miller and the parson and the, you know, summoner, all of these people who belong to different estates or different estates they would be able to come together um, and uh, you know they would be at least as far as the pilgrimage is concerned just on that plane they would actually be on the same footing because they're all pilgrims right Uh, they would the difference in the estates would definitely still remain but within the context of pilgrimage there are people who have are people who are still more similar than anywhere else Within a social context, uh, so many people from so you, from such disparate sort of backgrounds would not be able to come together and interact as freely as they do. Um, and uh, in that sense, the context that um, uh, the context that Chaucer sort of creates for these pilgrims, it's very very interesting. He goes on later to say, but not less, which is nevertheless, while I have time and space. Ear is before, er is still used in English to mean before or something that comes, um, you know, sort of it, it precedes something. Uh, but nonetheless, while I have time and space, so he's saying, While I have time and space, of course, he's a narrator, so he's all the time and space i have the opportunity. Before that, I further in this tale pace, space is move, proceed, right, walk. So he says, Before I go forward in this tale, before I tell you what happened when we started on the pilgrimage, me sink it it according to reason it uh, to tell you all the condition of each of them so as it seemed me and which they were and of what degree and eke in what array that they were in and at a night then will i first begin right um so he says me think it, it according to reason that i think it's according to reason that i i think it's reasonable to tell you all to tell all of you all the readers the condition, the condition here is character or the nature, it's given, um, the meaning is given here, of each of them as it seemed to me. So I will tell you what I think of them. So then sort of the the narrator then becomes sort of the arbiter of a social, uh, you know, sort of a lens of looking at all of these people and eek in what array, eek is also again a, a, a word that you're going to come across very, very often. And also in what array, array is clothes. In an archaic sense it's still used and e in what array that they were in as in what kind of clothes they were wearing now this might seem a little superfluous uh, that uh, the narrator is saying that i will tell you what was their character what was their condition and the next thing he says is i'll tell you what kind of clothes they're wearing but clothes in medieval uh, um, you know england or medieval europe in medieval times uh, much like today but uh, perhaps slightly less stringently so was a reflection of the kind of uh, was a reflection of the kind of social and economic position that people belong to. So people in different estates, people who belong to different estates uh, were required to or were allowed to wear different kinds of clothes. If you had money but you did not have the status to wear certain kinds of clothes, you couldn't do it. Now. Um, At this time, this is still the 14th century, this is before actually the explosion of the industrial revolution, but still uh, a certain sense of fluidity has sort of begun coming about, wherein the merchants um, have lot more money than they used to earlier land is still this is still feudal society so for those of you who were there in class we did discuss that you know this transition from feudal economy which is economy which is based on land where the basic value of the society basic economic value is measured in terms of in the parameters of land so people who have more land will have more power, will have more money. And when I say power, I mean more prestige, more political power, more social power and so on and so forth, right? So um, from here, uh, we move on towards the industrial revolution when uh, capitalism becomes sort of, you know, the the main political, economic and social system. And capitalism is called such because value lies in capital, in actual money, in industry, which holds the capital, right? It's no longer in land. Um, and because the, uh, because because the society, the traditional society, the traditional part of the society about which Chaucer is talking about is still feudal, it's still land-based society. So, um, you know, at this time, and Raghunathan sort of uh, does talk about it later on in a couple of uh, different um, profiles. Uh, the merchant, for example, is one such profile. The Franklin is another, uh, wherein she talks about, um, and the uh, the doctor of physique, I think if I remember it correctly, that he is another person like that. So all of these are people who have been able to buy some land. The sergeant at law definitely does that, which is very, very uncommon still. Land is the basic sort of value in society. Land is a basic uh, measure of value. And measure of economic worth in the society. So, the law states at this time that land cannot be bought and sold freely. Just because you have money, you would not be able to buy land. Um, Land is usually entailed from one uh, sort of male um, child to the next male child. If there are no male children, then it would move on to the next male relative. Uh, So, it's patrilineal in that sense. But land is not a commodity that can be bought and sold um, without an aristocratic or without a social estate in a certain sense license attached to it. So um, in, in that sense, um, you know, uh, these are people uh, who wear their estate, who wear their socio economic status on their bodies. For example, a lot of the characters within the prologue have very short cropped hair, they're very short hair and short hair was a symbol of servility, of one being a servant so when you look at them from a distance you would be able to tell that these are people who belong to the uh, lowest estate uh, which was the third estate which, is, uh, which, is, which grouped all the people who had to work for a living as opposed to the knight or the squire who belong uh, to the aristocratic estate, right, to the estate um, and the aristocratic estate is basically the people who have to f- who fight for a living versus people who pray for a living that's the second estate and perhaps the religious estate is the most important and the most powerful one so the par the partner the prioress the clerk the uh, you know um, all of these people who are associated with the church they are the people who pray for a living and that's how the estates are divided into three parts people who fight people who work people who pray and people who work are the lowest in the Hierarchy, of course. Similarly, uh, you know, the guildsmen, the Webb and the uh, Miller, and um, the Webb and the other four people, right? They are not allowed to have arms, they are not allowed to have knives or bucklers. which have been sheathed in or which are decorated with silver only copper is allowed to them so when you look at a person from a distance the uh, you know you would be able to tell which estate to, they belong to or what their profession is at least largely or broadly the knight is still wearing his chain mail which is sort of the kind of chain armor which knights would wear to uh, these crusades we have talked at length about the crusades the christian crusades in class so i will not go into the uh, into a detailed discussion of that similarly uh, the monk is supposed to wear a hood to represent that he's sort of, uh, you know, his head is covered in reverence, but at the same time also that he is not able to, and the hood was supposed to be so low that the monk is not able to see anything else. So he's cut off, he's cut off his vision from the world in a certain sense. But of course, what the monk does and what he doesn't do is uh, is it's a different thing. But you could look at people's clothes, their array, and you would tell exactly which estate they belong to. But also, very interestingly, and this is how Chaucer uses this. For people who did not conform to the stereotypes or the rules of their estates, it was very easy to see that they were doing so just by looking at the clothes that they were wearing and the kind of, um, you know, uh, the kind of leniency that they, um, they took in um, this kind of non-conformity. People who had money but not allowed to wear gaudy clothes would still do so. Um, some of that you can see in the wife of Bath as well so anyway coming back to what we were talking about which is why this discussion of their clothes is very important it's also very representative and very symbolic And at a night, then will I first begin. So he begins with the night. And um, this is very interesting because towards the end of the prologue, when the narrator says, now I've discussed everybody, I've told you what the host looks like, I've told you what the 29 pilgrims look like and so on and so forth. And he says, the host, uh, towards the end of the prologue says, let's have a storytelling contest. Everybody will tell two stories on our way to Canterbury and two stories on our way back. And whoever tells the best story, I'm going to be the judge of that. The host says that he is going to be he's going to be the judge whoever tells the best story is going to be um you know uh, rewarded with a lavish feast back at the tabard inn when they come back the host agrees to go with them uh, the host is the I think I have already said that the host is the owner of the tabard inn right that's why he's called the host and uh, so the host says let's pull out straws and this was uh, you know you have like a uh, you hold a, a lot of straws in your hand and whoever Pulls out the shortest straw is the one to go. So you uh, measure the length of straws in your hand and then you know who goes first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth and so on and so forth. Right. So to figure out who's going to tell the first story, that's what the host does. And there also, it's the knight who gets to tell the first story so in estate literature it was very very common there are two very important things about the estate literature you'll find both of these details on page number 32 and i would also suggest that you read Jilman's essay if i have the time um and if i have the bandwidth i will i can perhaps make another recording for her essay as well it's a very very important essay so two important characteristics of the estate literature both of which we've discussed in class however um one is of course the fact that uh, the estate literature keeps in mind the hierarchy of the estates. So people um, who appear in estate literature, if there are, there will be a whole range of people, um, you know, gathered together under different circumstances. In Chaucer, it is a circumstance of the pilgrim pilgrimage. Um, So uh, they follow the hierarchy of importance. So the knight and the squire would always come first. The knight would come first because the the knight is squire's father and he has a lot of experience. He is a worthy man. But he is also the senior in the most important estate. Then would come all the characters within uh, within the clergy who are associated with the church, and then would come all the people who belong to the third estate, which is the estate of people who work. Right? Um, so Chaucer makes a very interesting kind of so, um, interesting kind of uh, uh, Chaucer's take is very interesting in this regard. In the sense that he begins with the night in both the instances, both in the prologue as well as in the main text. He begins with the night, almost as if hinting that he is going to follow the norms and regulations of the estate's attire. But as soon as that is done, he sort of pulls back and he upsets the whole expectation and the whole, uh, you know, the... The decorum that is expected out of estate, um, you know, estate's attire. So, the first person whose profile is given is the knight, the second person whose uh, profile is given is the squire, and the third person is the yeoman. Now, the yeoman belongs to the third estate. He has to live, he has to sort of work for a living, sorry. He has to work for a living, and that's not the correct hierarchy. Similarly, when the knight starts telling his story in the actual main text, And his story is very proper and it's exactly the kind of story that you would expect out of somebody who goes to court and who's a part of the courtly system of courtly decorum. He tells a chivalric courtly love, um, you know, romance story. And um, he's very rudely interrupted by the miller who's absolutely drunken. And um, and hence the whole... um, the whole hierarchy is constantly being sort of destabilized. So, in one way of looking at it, is that Chaucer is intentionally not following the hierarchies of estate satire um, to digress um, or to um, you know or or to set the expectations of the reader in a slightly different directions to say that this is not an estate satire, so you shouldn't expect me to do that. The other thing that, uh, the other way in which this can be read is also to look at it as um, as a criticism itself of the estate satire, right? That estate satire by creating this kind of a strict hierarchy imposes a certain kind of inevitability and a predictability um, into the genre, which Chaucer is destabilizing and saying that we should not take things at face value. and everything is up for criticism. That's the other way of looking at it. However, uh, uh, we leave the first point be there. The second important point about the estate literature or the estate satire is the fact that estate satire was seen as a didactic or a you know or a corrective sort of a genre in the sense that um, it is based on the division of the estates, but it is also a satire, which basically means that the estate satire will usually uh, talk about the characters uh, or people profiles who belong to different estates but they would highlight how uh, these people were corrupt so instead of projecting ideal versions of estate uh, of of people who belong to different estates they would these would be satires of um, you know how these estates have been corrupted the ideal would be projected by representation of the corrupt right so there would always be a sense of or a tone of the didactic present in the uh, estate satire. Now what Chaucer does very interestingly here is that instead of constantly saying this is what the miller did or this is what the partner did or this is um, you know what the prioress did and they were wrong because the prioress is very very superficial, She's too uh, you know she is too fond of her appearance and a nun or a prioress is not supposed to be so fond of her appearance, Her uh, her leanings or her interests have to be more spiritual. Instead of being didactic, instead of being totally preachy all the time, uh, what Chaucer does is that he tries to represent them as is. And in a lot of cases, in fact, the narrator agrees with the corrupt and the corrupted versions of their own profiles that a lot of these uh, characters actually present, right? So when the partner says that you don't always have to listen to the scriptures and you know, in real life, it doesn't really work that way and uh, I don't really follow St. Augustine. The narrator says, oh, I think he's absolutely right. And you could not expect that out of a didactic, uh, you know, uh, out of didactic piece of literature. If it were didactic, it should have said, oh my God, partner is not right. He should not have said that. He's a bad man for saying so. But giving his characters that kind of space to be who they are and to present themselves uh, without the, you know, contextual judgment of the narrative, without the judgment, uh, without the narrator al- always stepping in and saying he a bad man for doing this, that, or whatever else, right? Um, he lets the characters be who they are, which creates for a more effective kind of a satire, uh, which helps in creating more uh, lifelike caricatures of the characters, which is perhaps one of the reasons why uh, Chaucer is that much more effective. Another very interesting thing and we are still continuing with the second aspect of how a, you know, Chaucer's text sort of digresses from the estate literature. Um, what he does very very interestingly is that the narrator, uh, a lot of times what the narrator chooses to talk about a particular character or about a particular profile is also very very interesting. Because he does not use a standard measure of description for all the people now, because as we've just seen sort of the um, you know the the contextual story right of the whole um, text is that the narrator has just met these thirty nine or these twenty nine people and the next morning he is going to go with them and he's spoken to them only for one evening. so there's absolutely no way that he can possibly know so much about everybody that he would be able to talk about them in detail, right? But he does give a lot of intimate details about a lot of these characters, which is, of course, it's a slight uh, narrative sort of digression. That's one thing. But also, um, you know, what he does, what the narrator does is that he chooses a different strategy for descri- of description for different kinds of characters. Uh, the prioress for example when he talks about the prioress he does not talk about all the things that she does wrong he gives an objective representation of everything that she does and very subtle sort of undertones of of comparison of the prioress with the heroines of the chivalric romance sort of seep in through the description uh, that's one way in which he sort of brings out the glaring unsuitability or unreligiousness of, non-religiousness of the prioress. So, unsuitability of the prioress to her own vocation. That's one way in which he does it. Now, the parson and the plowman are two very, very interesting um, profiles in that sense. When he talks about, when, when the narrator talk, talks about the parson, for example, the parson is one of the few ideal characters who is really, really, really good at his work. He he follows the, you know, he... he follows the ideal of his profession and um, he does everything that's required of him and then some and then some more uh, but the way in which the narrator actually describes the person is not by saying that he's so great hes so this he so that like the whole page is not full of just his praises he talks about everything that he does not do and by saying that he's not corrupt for example, and then he doesn't go to the city to look for more money. He doesn't do this, which is corrupt. He doesn't do that, which is bad. He doesn't do this, which is bad. He exposes the corruption in the profession of the parson, the corruption that other persons who are corrupt can be accused of by describing the parson in negation and saying that he doesn't do all of these things, which other corrupt persons actually do. So he talks about the ideal of a particular estate, of a particular profession by talking about what the corrupt or the exact opposite spectrum or the exact opposite end of the spectrum, people who fall in that place, what they actually do. The plowman who is the, who's the Parsons brother is explained or he's described in exactly the opposite terms. The plowman is described in positive terms. The narrator will tell us, he'll do this, 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 that's why he's great. For the person he says, he doesn't do this, he doesn't do this, he doesn't do this, he doesn't do this, that's why he's great. So these are some of the narrative sort of techniques that the narrator uses, that Chaucer uses to create a sense of uh, sort of, you know, varied set of people who are described in different terms in a certain sense to, you know, suit each profile separately anyway so the night we've already discussed in class so I'm just going to read through it if any one of you has a difficulty or has a confusion in the night or the squares uh, profile please let me know a night there was and that a worthy man now worthy is a word that he constantly keeps on using again and again there are some background information about the knight given on pages 17, 25 and 26 of the introduction as well. I'm not going to go into this because I've already done it in class. Please go back to these pages in the introduction and um, read through it. Um, again, make the connection, um, take the help of the class notes as well. That from the time that he first began to ride out, he loved chivalry, chivalry truth and honor, freedom and courtesy. So. He starts by uh, discussing the knight's um, qualities in the positive. If you remember the person that we were just talking about, he says from the first time that he started to ride out, ride out as in go on, uh, you know, these um, religious sort of voyages. um, Right, Right. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, to ride out, he loved chivalry. Now, chivalry is a whole system of um, sort of propriety. We've talked about that in class as well. He loved truth, he loved honor, he loved freedom, and he loved courtesy. Now, courtesy is more than just, uh, you know, being nice and appearing nice. Courtesy was, again, it it was seen as a whole um, spectrum of virtues, being very, very liberal. And truly being a gentleman, full worthy was he, again, that word worthy, full worthy was he in his lord's war, war is war, and thereto had he ridden no man fur. So he had ridden in his lord's war, as in he was um, he was a crusader, he went on a lot of crusades, and he went on more crusades than other people, and really the list seems to be absolutely endless. As well in Christendom, as in heatheness, the difference between Christianity and heathen, um or pagan religions we have already talked about in class. If you don't understand, please uh, get back to me, or just Google it. And ever honoured for his worthiness. At alexander Alexandria is Alexandria, which is in Egypt. At alexander he was when it was won. So when uh, Christianity came into Alexandria, when it came into Egypt, he was there. He was part of that glorious, um, you know, uh, war. Full of time, he had the board begone. He had but the board begone Basically means that. Uh, There were a lot of knights who went out uh, to fight the Christian war, who were crusaders, who went to different parts of the world. They were uh, given the authority to go out and um, convert. They were sort of missionaries, convert all the other uh, races, all the other religions into Christianity. Sometimes by force, sometimes by war. And uh, when Christianity was settled into all of these places, then they were also politically aligned with Europe, with the Christian, sort of with the Christian nations, and so on and so forth. Right. So these were religious, economic, as well as political wars, and he has been to a lot of them. Bought begone basically means at the head of the table, so there were a lot of knights who went into the service of the Pope and the King into these uh, wars, and even amongst all of these knights, this particular knight was so great, he was so honored, he was so senior, he was so chivalrous, and he was so courageous. That amongst those knights, among those, all of them were courageous people. He was the best of them all as well. So he was allowed the honour of sitting at the head of the table. Hmm? About all in above all nations in Prus, Prus is Prussia Prussia, in Leto in Lithuania had he raised, and in Rus, no Christian man so often of his degree. Degree is rank. It's estate. It is important. No Christian man, so oft of his degree, in Grenade is Granada in Spain. At the siege, eek, eek is also. In Granada, in at the siege also had he been. So, um, when Spain was taken, even then he was there, of El Jazir and ridden in Belmer. At Lais was he, and in satellite when they were one, and in the great sea, at many a noble army had he be. Right? So he's been to all of these expeditions, to all of these places. At moral battles, had he been 15, moral, mortal battles, mortal battles uh, and fought for our faith at Tramesene. Mortal battles is, um, this could be a reference to uh, the practice which was used very often, even in battles where the best fighters from both sides were called on to fight sort of one on one hand to hand combat or you know swords uh, with weapons so one to one combat was done between um, the representative fighters from both the sides in wars also and whichever one uh, was seen as a sort of a symbolic victory so he has been to these kind of mortal combats a lot of these tie th- a lot of these one to one combats were also lancing combats um, we talked about that in class as well. So he's been through those kind of one-to-one combats also. And of course, if he's been to 15 of those combats and he's still here on pilgrimage, uh, the fight would not end till the time one person died. So obviously, he survived all of them. So he's a really great um, fighter in that sense. And lists thrice and I slain his four. Lists is tournaments, again, Lancing tournaments. It could be lancing tournaments. It could be other tournaments as well this ilk the same worthy knight had been also sometime with the lord of palatai again another heathen in Turkey. so uh, again is against so he was in the uh, in the um, with the lord of Ballat um, when he took up turkey again these are all muslim or uh, heathen nations where uh, christian knights like him went they fought wars they overtook the countries and they con- converted them to christianity and this was seen as the Lord's work. Again, religious society in medieval Europe, this was very, very important. This was seen as Lord's work. So there was a lot of prestige which was associated with it. And evermore, he had a sovereign price. Price is here, it means he has a sovereign as a sovereign is basically somebody who's democratic, somebody who's fair. Price is that he has that kind of a reputation. And though that he were worthy, he was wise. Now, being worthy here means that he was um, he was brave, right? Worthiness is associated with courage in battle and um, such places. But wisdom was usually associated, uh, you know, with chivalry. It, it was seen as a slightly different kind of a value or different kind of a characteristics. So not everybody who was... Um, not everybody who was brave was also wise, but Chaucer is making sure that the knight is perfect in every which way. And of his port, port is um, behavior um, as meek as a maid, as meek as, as in gentle as a maid, as in a young woman. So, again, there is nothing to complain about him. So, he is both manly because he's going to wars and he is winning them, but he is also gentle as a maid. So, he can be both, he's the best of both worlds. He never yet no villainy, and he said in all his life unto no manner white. White is a person. We'll come across this word again and again. So villainy is, again, I've said this in class, but this is going to come up many times, so I'm just going to talk about it in a second. Uh, a villain was a person who lived in a village, and this was often associated with um, being crude, with being discourteous, with being rude, with being non-civilized, and this was often um, contrasted with learned um, behavior so when he says he never yet no villainy he said which means that he had never said a rude word he'd never said a discourteous or uncivil word to anyone in all his life unto no manner white and no manner white is any kind of person to no person of any degree he was a very very is the same root word in latin uh, which means truth we are a i pray in Fran- french also means uh, truth so he was very as in he was truthful he was perfect perfect is perfect which is complete he was genteel, which is uh, which is gentility was a symbol of of being of an aristocratic birth but for to tell him you of his array now he said all of these things about the knight and now he starts talking about his clothes which is exactly what he had in a, in a sense which is what he had promised in the beginning his horse were good as in he had horses but he was not gay and here gay means it was not loud it was not showy it was not um, you know it was not unnecessarily <coughs> ornamented of fustion he wore a gippen. Fustian was a thick cotton gippon is a tunic so a long shirt that was worn all besmoted with his <coughs> haber gown haber gown is the chain mail that is that was worn Um, as armor in battles and bismoted basically means that it was was stained and here the reference is that it was still stained with blood and uh, in medieval Europe it was not easy for people to because clothes were so cumbersome and they had to be worn in a particular manner in a lot of places um, aristocratic people would not be able to even wear their own clothes on their own so they would need assistants and servants to do that for them and um, these chain clothes these um, you know armors were so heavy that it was not possible to take them off and put them on all the time so a lot of times um, even women who wore these those huge gowns would wear them for 2-3 days at a stretch um, people did not need to wash or bathe very very often it was not exactly considered to be um, very very important so um, what the night has done is that it seems as if the, the armour, the chain armour that he is wearing, is still smothered with, is still stained with blood, which means that he is coming straight from a war, he is not even changed, he is not even cared to change his clothes, He's just come from pilgrimage. So from the Lord's work in the battlefield to the Lord's work in the shrine, the knight is as perfect as could be in medieval England. For he was late, he come from his voyage, voyage is expedition, and went for to do his pilgrimage. So, from the battlefield on to the pilgrimage, that's what he does. With him there was his son, a young squire, a lover and a lusty bachelor. Squire is again of aristocratic birth, but the squire was also somebody who was a sort of a second in command to a knight. Knights would have squires and humans and because he is of aristocratic birth, so it was necessary of for somebody of his station to have two, three people who would assist him. The squire would be sort of the aristocratic assistant. Who would learn the ropes of how to be a knight from whoever he was assisting? Here, the squire is the knight's son, and they have only one servant, who is a yeoman, who is the next sort of profile. Um, it was not very common for knights and for squires to uh, travel with just one servant. It was beneath their station in certain senses. He was a lover, it basically means that he was he's young and he's in love. He is in that state of uh, sort of life and a lusty bachelor. Here, lusty lust. Nowadays we use only in a sexual sense um, but in medieval England lusty basically could be used for men for women for animals for anything which is full of life right? It, it's, an, it's an adjective which means full of life. With looks krull, locks sorry locks locks is basically locks of hair. krull is basically curly as they were light and pressed so his hair was so perfectly curled it almost seemed as if he had done it artificially. Of 20 years of age, he was, I guess, right? Um, also notice that uh, we don't know what the knight's name is. He does give the name of some of the other characters, but not the knight's. Of his stature, he was of even length, which means he was of moderate height. His body or physique was, um, you know, it was moderate and he was well-proportioned. And wonderly deliver, and of great strength. He was very agile. Deliver is wonderfully basically means wondrous very well, amazing, he was very agile and he had a lot of strength and he had been some time in Shivashi, Shivashi is a cavalry expedition again, um, most probably he has been to these expeditions with his father whom he is assisting in Flounders, in Artoys, and in Picardy and borne him well as of so little space in hope to stand in his lady's grace. So he's been to all of these places and expeditions, he's been to Flanders, to Artois, to Picardy, these are all places in France if I'm not wrong and uh, pawned them well. So he's been to all of these expeditions and he's come back and he's, he's not worse for the wither. He's taken all of these expeditions well even though they would have been physically exhausting. But remember, he is just twenty years of age, or at least that's what the narrator is guessing. And uh, he is not let it affect him because he hopes to stand in, in his lady's grace. Because he he still maintained himself well because he's looking for his he's looking to be um, you know liked by his lady. Embroidered was he, as it was a mead, all full of fresh flowers, white and reed. Singing he was, or flointing all the day. He was as fresh as is the month of May. May is going to come later on. This is still the month of April, if you remember. So embroidered was he? This basically means that his clothes were embroidered. Contrast this with the knight, whose clothes are stained with the chainmail, with his armour. So clearly the squire is more careful and more, um, you know, um, more concerned with his physical appearance than his father is and uh, as if it were a mead, as in just like in a meadow there which is full of flowers, white and red. So his clothes are embroidered with white and red flowers, so of course he is very stylish. Singing he was and playing the flute all day, he was as fresh as is the month of May. Short was his gowns, with sleeves long and wide, well could he sit on horse and fair ride. So his gown was short, his sleeves long and wide, so he's fashionable, he's keeping up with the latest fashion and he could sit on the horse and he could ride very well, right? He could songs make and well and indict, just and eek, just basically is jousting, which is a game and eek is also, he could joust, he could dance, he could dance and well true try and ride. So he could describe as and he could ride things. And he could, uh, you know, he could make songs, he could sing songs, he could play the flute. So basically, he's a very merry kind of person. So so he loved that by the nighted a, a tale, he sleep no more than does a nightingale. Now, we've already, uh, in the very first ten lines of the description, we've heard that this is the month of April, where the nightingales can't sing, uh, they can, they can't sleep because, you know, because there's, 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 they're so struck by the season. They sing all night for love. And that's the same kind of image that is given here. It's not necessarily a sexual image when he says he was so um, so hotly he loved that by the night a tale that all night he slept no more than does a nightingale. He stayed up all night. Um, the reference uh, would not necessarily be sexual. Curtis he was lowly and serviceable and calf before his father at the table. So he is... Accompanying his father, not as his son, but as a squire. So he would courtesy very low. He would be of, he would be willingly service his father as his master, as somebody who's teaching him the ropes of how to be a knight. And um, he would carve uh, in front of his father before the table. So the squire was supposed to do all of these things for the knight of whom he was the apprentice. So, he's doing all of his duties very well and yet he is also a playful, um, you know, a jolly sort of a fellow. So, this is another one of those positive sort of um, profiles that Chaucer brings for us. Right. Let's just finish the yeoman. A yeoman had he and servants no more. So, the, uh, a yeoman had he. So, this is about the knight. The knight had a servant, um, a yeoman and namo is no more and that time for him list rides so uh, because at this time it pleased him to ride only with one servant and he was clad in coat and hood of green which means that he was a forester the description is given on page number 56 please see it a sheaf of peacock arrows peacock peacock arrows bright and keen under his belt he bore full swiftly so he is a forester he is a yeoman. He does a lot of odds and ends jobs for both the squire as well as for the knight, and he is very good at his job. So he has a whole uh, sheaf of arrows which are bright and keen as in their sharp, which is me, which means that they are well maintained. The yeoman is good at his job, and under his belt he bore full thriftily, well could he dress his staple yeomanly. Yeomanly is a word that Chosen actually invents; it didn't uh, exist before this. And um, uh, Chaucer, the narrator, says that he can dress and he can keep and he can maintain his equipment very, very well. It's very obvious that uh, he can do this. His arrows droop not with feathers low. Even the arrows, which are not usually used except for out of outside of combat, right? But even so, even on a pilgrimage, if you look at his arrows, the feathers would not be drooping. So he keeps them in good service. And in his hand, he bore a mighty bow. The mighty bow would be a reference according to Raghunathan to the six foot long bow which was specifically English. It was very very common for yeoman and foresters to carry these A not heed which means close cut hair had he with a brown visage again a brown visage or, or a ruddy visage would mean that somebody who's outside who's in the sun they get tan so it was a symptom of or it was a representation of somebody who works for a living so somebody who belongs to the third estate Short cropped hair. I've already told you is uh, is a symbol of somebody who is in the service. Again, both of these physical features show you that he is a he's he's part of the third estate. And by his side, side a sword and a buckler. A buckler would be a small shield. And on that other side, a gay dagger. Gay here means ornamented, something that is decorated. So he was carrying a deck, a dagger, a sword, a buckler, arrows, six foot bow. You can imagine what he looked like. Harnessed well. Uh, which means that his he is a good horse again the kinds of horses that people carried that also was representative of how much money they had so he's harnessed well he is a good sturdy horse and sharpest point of spear a Christophe on his breast of silver shown right uh, the Christophe is um, as in a medal of Saint Christopher who was a patron saint of foresters and travelers and silver basically means that it's expensive uh, which means that he has uh, at least some money a horn he bore bore as in he carried uh, the bodrick was a green and uh, he carried a horn also the horns by foresters were used for many things like even for drinking water and so on and so forth and it was also it was also a symbol that he is uh, caught and killed something of you know and they carry the horns along with the bodrick or the sling or the belt His belt was also green, his clothes are also green basically means that he's a forester through and through. A forester was he soothly as I guess. Right, Soothly is truly and that's what we've been talking about. I'll start with the next um, profiles uh, in the next audio lecture.